This is the SIDCast, and I'm your host, Sid Finkelstein, and my guest today is Rick Greenwall, a PhD engineer and founder of Simbex, a company that uh, is right in the midst of dealing with one of the biggest problems people are beginning to recognize more and more for in sports, and especially in kids' sports, and that's uh, brain injuries uh, and how to prevent them, how to avoid them. And uh, it's really remarkable because Rick himself is a... Is a um, uh, an athlete uh, loves to play, plays soccer, coaches soccer, and uh, and he's uh, he's heading the ball himself in soccer, and uh, he doesn't he's not really concerned about that, uh, but yet uh, he he knows that there are some elements of sports, especially as you get to a uh, either a more professional level or when you talk about little kids, that you have to be careful careful about. One of the things Rick uh, teaches us uh, is that there really is a lot we don't know about brain injuries, and he is a I'm going to say a stickler for data. He actually wants to know the truth. He wants to know what works and what doesn't work. And uh, and, and that heavily influences the types of products and, uh, and services that Simbex, his company, uh, his company offers. Uh, so I thought it would, be, it would be fascinating to bring in someone who has this type of technical background at the same time has created a, uh, a thriving company um, that is all about trying to uh, eliminate, maybe too strong a word, but avoid or minimize uh, brain injuries that come from, come from sports. He's one of the leading experts around today. And I think we're going to have a, uh, I think people, especially parents that are thinking about their kids in sports, are going to want to be glued to this, uh, to this conversation of, uh, uh, of me talking to Rick about brain injuries. And Rick is an entrepreneur and, uh, and someone that wants to, know, wants to know what's really going on and wants facts to determine what the right solutions are to problems. Um, we'll be right back with Rick Greenwald. Hey, we've got Rick Greenwald with us today. Hey, Rick, how you doing? I'm doing well, Sid. Thanks. Good. I'm glad to have you uh, have you here. Uh, so, when when did you start getting interested in in sports injury? Where did this 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 theme come from? Uh, that all started for me back in high school on a soccer field. I hurt my knee my senior year in high school. Yeah. I was uh, uh, playing and twisted my knee, and my dad, being a physician on Long Island, was able to be well-connected with a lot of the orthopedics community. Mm-hmm. And he said, sure, we can take you over and, and see the doctor. Uh, we went over to this leading orthopedist, and he told me that he wanted to stick this very long needle into my knee and inject some iodine and take a picture. It was called an arthrogram. Mm-hmm. And after he did that, he looked at the results and said, maybe you have a torn ligament in your knee, and we could cut you open from your mid-thigh to your mid-calf and see if oh, we could boy. fix it. Oh, my. So this is, this is like... You don't look you don't look uh, old at all, but it sounds like it's ancient history, right? It was a long a time different ago. Different technology entirely. So what what happened then? Well, I I thought to myself at that point, well, there's got to be a better way to do that, and I learned that that was the the technology of the day mm-hmm. uh, to go in and take a look, and it it sparked my interest. It was right around the time I was applying to college, right? And I decided, well, engineering was interesting to me, medicine was interesting to me as well because of my family. I had a lot of doctors in my family. Yeah. And uh, the engineering side was more interesting, and I thought maybe I could focus some of my efforts on that down the road. And it wasn't until four years later in graduate school I started actually studying knee injuries. So this is actually interesting that you're talking about a medical condition you had, not condition, but injury, and, um, and you end up uh, going into engineering. And more and more you see engineering and medicine kind of overlapping in interesting ways. Um, why? I mean, why? a lot of people wouldn't understand that, wouldn't really see why that's the case. Uh, why, why do you think engineering and medicine are almost becoming sister 
fields of study now. And that I, I don't know if that was the case, you know, 50 years ago. Well, in this in this case, it was as much, um, you know, having such an exposure to medicine at an early age uh, through my family, my dad, uh, my brother ultimately became a doctor, my uncle. Um, but the building things was what yeah. got me. And it was clear that they needed different tools. Um, the doctor's could only see as much as they could see and do what they, they had of the day. So I think that marriage between uh, medicine and engineering has probably accelerated over the last couple decades, uh, particularly with computing power available, mm-hmm. sensing power available, mm-hmm. all the, the really interesting ways we can now look in and at the body. Right, right. And uh, are, are, do you spend much time thinking about or working with kind of this, all this new digital stuff, you know, uh, whether it's things that Apple Watch can do to much more sophisticated than that? Yeah. Absolutely. The, uh, the Internet of Medical Things yes. is, is quite interesting and, and a field of, of interest. To, any any to cool us. things you've seen out there? Well, I'm sure we'll talk about it uh, during the course of this discussion, but uh, our helmet monitoring technology where we uh, are monitoring head impacts in sports and trying to understand uh, issues around head injuries, that effectively was a wearable digital technology back in the early 2000s before uh, wearable technologies had that buzzword Before name. Before anyone even used that term, probably, right? Correct. Yeah, we'll definitely get into that because that's such a such an interesting thing. By the way, the, the knee injury, what would people do today if, that, if you had the same knee injury? Well, they would either do an arthroscopy to take a look. They might do an MRI uh, to take a look and see if they could rule out the injury. Um, but they certainly wouldn't cut you open from thigh to, thigh to calf. And no, they wouldn't. Just to take a look and see <laughs> if maybe you had an injury. And, and even if you did have the injury, then the surgery was pretty uh, early on and, and pretty severe and took a long time to uh, recover. The ACL surgery. That's correct. Um, yeah, I, uh, I tore my ACL about, um, I'm going to say it's 15 years, and I never got the operation. I just built up the muscle around it and exercised a lot. And um, I had read, uh, and I think even more recently I read this because I was curious, because sometimes the knee hurts, and should I go and do this finally? And it doesn't sound like the success rates for the operation are all that impressive given that you can have an operation compared to just doing rehab on your own? I think a lot of it depends on your age. Um, and you might be disqualified And for in that this then. case, your gender. But no, I, I think the earlier, uh, the younger you are, and yeah. if you're really interested in continuing to play uh, cutting and competitive sports, yes. uh, then the surgery is probably warranted. And the success rate in qualified hands is, is really good. Mm-hmm. Um, the rehab's hard. It's a it's a long, arduous process, and you have to be rigorous about the rehab. Alternatively, you try to rehab, um, get strong the muscles around it, and try not to have the surgery. And if you can still do what you want to do, um, probably not a bad option. My wife, Ann, also tore her ACL uh-huh. in her 40s uh, playing soccer, and right. she did the same thing as you did. She got She was really strong going in and kept at it, and mm-hmm. she can do pretty much everything. She doesn't really? play soccer anymore. She doesn't play soccer. Yeah. But she plays lots of other sports. Really, yeah. The, the stops and starts is really the challenge, isn't it? That's correct. Yeah, like um, I can't play singles tennis um, and squash. Forget about that. Uh, but doubles tennis, even though I don't seem to have enough time to do it, but I can play that because it's you don't have to cover as much of the court. You just got to find the thing you can do, right? That's right. Yeah. So, um, um, growing up in your family, you said your family of family of doctors and uh, your brother also became a doctor. Is that what happened? Our brother is a doctor, a so gastroenterologist okay. in New York so City. What's it like to grow up? I mean, you didn't grow up any other way, so it's a hard, hard to compare to anything. But what's it like to grow up with a, in, a, in a household of scientists and doctors? Well, it's interesting, and it's challenging, and it's fun. Um, mm-hmm. My dad was a, a general medicine and internist on Long Island, and 
saw pretty much the whole range of things. I used to go, and from a really young age, I used to go round with him oh. and uh, used to see the different patients. He was always clear to make me go to the emergency room and see every motorcycle uh, accident <sighs> victim that he could to encourage me never to never to go never to get on a motorcycle, and you, which, of and course, you saw that. I promptly did when I got to to graduate school. I rode did you a motorcycle really? just for a very brief period just of time. Just to show you Just to, to have some fun. That's actually very interesting. You ever self-analyze that after seeing all that kind of craziness? No, I think it was simple. Uh, one of the other students had a motorcycle. He asked if he could store it at my garage, and I figured while it was there, I had to try it. <laughs> so it was a lot of fun. But but back to, yeah. to uh, growing up, mm-hmm. my, my mom's a mathematician and uh, very rigorous in terms of, of getting us to, to try to appreciate uh, the value of details and numbers. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, in that context and with my parents and then at a high school where uh, science and science research was so stressed and great program in science research skills early on, I think those all came together to help right. formulate my, my interest in, it, in engineering. Think, I mean, think about that background that, that you had. Of course, you can't choose your own family, but, but you also went to a great school, high school, uh, where science and math uh, were, were really stressed. Uh, and today we talk so much about the need for STEM people to have, you know, experience and go into science, technology, engineering, and and and, and medicine. And um, you uh, you did it in the business side, uh, uh, as we'll talk about, and the technical side, the engineering side. You did it in a couple of different couple of different ways. Uh, but uh, have you uh, have you seen or ha- have any sense of you know what we can do? I mean, this is a tough one, also, right? What we can do to improve or increase the number of kids going into science and math and medicine. I mean, it just seems like you had a lot of things going your way along with some pretty good brain power, but a lot of kids don't have that. I was really lucky. I think what we have to do and and must continue to do is to encourage uh, investment in teachers Uh so that you get those great teachers who want to be in the middle school and in the high school uh, and any kind of programs that encourage uh, STEM education. I'm I'm fortunate right now I'm serving on the... uh, board of the New Hampshire Academy of Science, which is focused on STEM education uh, here in New Hampshire. And the whole goal is to how do you expose kids in the middle school to these programs so that they have an opportunity, whether it's someone whose family is scientific and they can get further ahead or someone who really just never gets exposed to it. And we have to get them interested. So uh, some of that sounds like it's structural or, you know, set up opportunities for kids, but you start with teachers. So let me ask you about some of your teachers. Do you remember any of them from the high school days? Or Absolutely. You do. I, I think they were the critical formative uh, uh, experiences that, that led me into science. Um, they had set up in Baldwin High School on Long Island this incredible program uh, called Science Research Skills. And it gave 10th graders and 11th graders experiences to do science research projects, real projects. And then they encouraged us to apply for some of these uh, available experiences through the National Science Foundation to go for summer experiences. And then you'd come back and they'd encourage you to finish the research and maybe even apply for one of these great um, congresses. The Long Island Science Congress was a big one. And then from there, you could even apply to what was then called the Westinghouse Talent Search. Oh, yeah. Is, uh, there's a different name to it now. Yeah, I, th- I don't know who it's the sponsor the is now. It was Intel, and now it's something oh, else. But okay. what a great program and exposure to go and present your work, learn about the scientific method, and, and how to do it right, which yeah. I think is what we all need to right. learn how to do. Exactly. And, and, but you also had, you know, you had teachers that gave you that passion, that, that, that interest. I'm all, being an educator myself, I'm always curious about techniques or things, or maybe it's just somebody says something, maybe it's the, 
it's set up a certain way. Maybe you're in a peer group where this is a normal thing to do. Uh, but any recollection of any specific things any of these teachers did, and um, I call it techniques, but uh, sometimes it's a simple, you know, we were, um, we, we, uh, I did a podcast with Bill Hammond, who you might, might know as a teacher in the, in the uh, Vermont, New Hampshire area, and a principal, and uh, he would just teach kids that there's nothing they can't do. Never say you can't do it. Of course, there's certain obvious limits to, 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 to life, but you should go into everything saying, I can do it. There's nothing I can't at least try to do. And he instilled that and just became this powerful motive. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that was the guiding principle that, that these teachers were doing was to first give you exposure, yep. then give you opportunity, and then really just open the doors where they could. They knew a lot of people. Uh, I was always impressed by how many people around the country they knew and they could reach out if you had a, uh, uh, a need for something in your research. They would say, oh, I, I think I know someone there. And, and back then, of course, they, they'd write a letter or pick <laughs> up the phone. There was no email. Right. Um, but that's something that uh, I try to give back myself and, and do when, when high school students call and ask. Mm-hmm. Um, at our company, we have uh, Job Shadow Day, um, which is really fortunate. And we have middle school students come in and spend a day with our engineering team. And I think it works great both ways. It gives my staff a chance to, to give back a little to the students. And the students come in. And what's been really fun with that is we've done it for about 10 years now. That's through the Upper Valley Business uh, Enterprise Partnership, mm-hmm. UVBEP. And... Those students come back sometimes. They come back asking for internships. Really? And they come back and they send me notes 10 years later saying, wow. now I'm an engineer, now I'm a doctor. Isn't that Part rewarding? of that came from, that wonderful? from coming to visit. Yeah. Oh, it's wonderful. You know, I've had these conversations with different groups who especially talk about the challenges of getting um, uh, more women in engineering jobs and minorities. And, um, and clearly the numbers are heavily imbalanced um, against those groups. Uh, but one of the ideas uh, that, that's come up, and i I've, I've heard it from some people, and some of what you're saying is actually quite analogous, is create those opportunities for young people at, at the high school level, and sometimes even middle school, uh, to kind of just be there and see what's going on, and maybe when they're capable to do some type of internship, and it might be the type of inspiration that, that they need. And the problem with that, that I often see is people are, you know, in their business, and they're saying, well, we want to hire someone, a college graduate. Uh, from a minority community, and the the sample is much smaller than it would have been a few years earlier, and everybody wants the same kids. Uh, so in a way, the answer is, well, start at the high school level. That's kind of what you did. It's I don't know that you had necessarily a strategy to um, find talent, although maybe you did, but you, it was more of a strategy of giving back um, and helping other people. But it seems like a pretty good plan. seemed like a good way to go. I, I don't think we were looking for future employees, yeah, but yeah, uh, yeah. It, it's a wonderful way to give back to the community and you see that spark in some of the kids' eyes, and, and you know that these are the kids who are probably going to pursue science or engineering or uh, math as a career, and uh, they go and do it. Yeah. So actually, you know, people listening that have, all, I mean, you're in obviously engineering and, 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 and med- medical uh, equipment um, um, field, but people listening to me, all, all sorts of businesses, uh, the look in their eyes, the way you just said it, you know, when you see that, I think a lot of people listening probably have had that experience, sometimes for themselves, uh, when, when somebody created that opportunity for them. And boy, if even, you know, one out of five of the people in a position to do something about it, who are listening, do something, that would be like a gigantic home run, wouldn't it? It, it would be. It would and be and that. that's why I think we have to get to the teachers, because they're the ones who can probably make that connection for the students. Yeah. If we educate the teachers, then it's multiplicative. It, it can get out there further. 
That's uh, that's uh, actually very true. There's an exponential effect to, uh, to 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 educating opinion leaders, teachers, and even people in, in business um, who have the opportunity to help in ways they might not even thought of. Um, back to um, growing up in you grew up in New York area, uh, Long Island, and were you in the city as well? No, we were about 15 minutes outside the city. Uh, not very Just far. Close enough to have fun when we could. Oh yeah, uh, New York was quite a place, no doubt. And uh, this was 60s or 70s. Actually, it was in the 70s. In the 70s. Uh, not the safest place to be in general, but yeah. but really quite fun and always good to go both with family and then the times when you'd sneak in there by yourself with your friends and uh, have a little fun, uh, unannounced, <laughs> if you will. Right. Well, we won't uh, get into those details uh, since who knows who's listening, right? Um, uh, you were an entrepreneur at a young age, too, I think. I mean, where... uh, I think it's a funny start to, to the game, but uh, I think my first real experience with entrepreneurship came when I was uh, in junior high school. And every time it snowed on Long Island, which was more frequent then than it is now, I think, mm-hmm. uh, we had to go out and shovel the, shovel the yard and the walkway and the driveway. And then we'd do the neighbors, and then you'd do the person next to it, and people would give you $10 or $5 or whatever they wanted to give you, and you were very thankful. And it just seemed to take the whole day, and you'd make 40 or $50, and that was a lot. But right. I wondered if you could do a little bit more. And one day I noticed uh, one of the neighbors across the street, his dad had bought a snowblower. And then on the days when it snowed, it seemed like that snowblower was nowhere to be found. It wasn't out there being used. Mm-hmm. And so I talked to the, the neighbor's son, my friend, about it, and he told me his dad was gone at work. And okay. so I basically just took the snowblower <laughs> and started blowing snow and made a lot more money that way. You, uh, you were shoveling before. Now you, had, now you had the technology. Right. So there's a technology lesson in that, too, as well as uh, entrepreneurial. Did you always know you wanted to create a business or businesses? I think so. I think it was always a spark uh, for me. It seemed like uh, I'm probably not so good working for other people. And so I don't like taking direction too much. We we talked to, I think, on the SIDCast, as it turns out, quite a few people entrepreneurial in all sorts of ways. And and I'm wondering where, where it comes from. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, we could say we were born that way with certain experiences. But uh, entrepreneurs are never satisfied with the status quo. Um, they always want to try it. They're curious. They want to try something new. Um, they have a kind of a, a big appetite for experimentation. Where, where do you think that all comes from? Or in your case, where did it come from? I won't speak for anyone else. I think in my case, it just came from the people around my family. There were a lot of others who were entrepreneurs and having their own businesses and, and doing fun things. And I think they always challenged me to, to just say, hey, do what you think is interesting and, and find new ways to do things. Be creative. Um, yeah, that was and, always a challenge. <laughs> and um, you, um, but you end up going to school, and I think you had a master's degree at Dartmouth, and you went to, uh, for a PhD at some point as well, um, which is not what a lot of entrepreneurs do, although there's some sectors where you do see highly educated people. Uh, and then you... Um, um, you, you did all sorts of really interesting things. Like as you as you kind of walk through your your background and experience, it's like building blocks, stepping stone, one after another and after another, with deeper and deeper experience in a broad area that's helped kind of create the companies and efforts you've been on, uh, you, you've been involved with. So I want to take a short break and maybe get back into um, a conversation with uh, with Rick Greenwald on uh, some of those entrepreneurial ventures. We'll be right back. Okay, we're back with uh, Rick Greenwald. Rick, you find yourself a few years down the line in Utah. 
you're getting a PhD program, you're focusing specifically on knee injuries, I guess knee injuries in, in sports. So let me just start by asking, why do you want to do that? Why, why did you gravitate? Now, I know you had the ACL injury, but a number of years have now passed, uh, and you've experienced a lot of different things. But why, why was that the area you wanted to be in? Sure. My master's work at Dartmouth was uh, related to um, knee ligament replacement options. I was working with John Collier and Mike Mayer here at their school, uh, at Dartmouth, and we were working on artificial ligaments at the time. And after my master's, uh, I ended up three years later out in Utah to further that work and, and start doing uh, studying and understanding how knee ligaments got hurt in sports like skiing mm -hmm. and understanding ski equipment and, and the issues around how to release a, a ski binding. Mm -hmm. So I lived in Park City, Utah, um, and right near the Winter Sports Park where the Olympics were held. Uh -huh. And I had been talking with some, some colleagues who uh, worked on sports equipment, helmets in particular, and they asked me about uh, what was happening with some of the other athletes in this area. Mm -hmm. I got invited to go to the Winter Sports Park and take a look at the U.S. freestyle aerial teams. Why? I was at a party one night, and I noticed that some of the other athletes were sitting in the corner, and they were kind of quiet. And it seemed unusual. I asked, well, what's up with that group? Mm. And they said, oh, those are the aerialists. I said, well, what about them? And they said, oh, they seem to hit their heads a lot. I oh. said, well, how often do they hit their heads? And they said, a lot. And so I you know, did what most anyone would do. I went the next day and I watched. And I saw that they hit their heads ooh, one out of every six or seven times. Oh, and we counted a lot. They were wearing kayaking helmets at the time. That's who would sponsor them. There was no specific helmet for aerialists. We didn't know a lot about it. What was a kayaking helmet? Like what? It was just a little thinner, but it, 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 was, it was a helmet. And it mm -hmm. had the same kind of protective okay. padding. Um, but there was no specific helmet that was uh, named for skiing or understood for skiing. And so after understanding that now they hit their heads a lot, I started asking a bunch more questions and subsequently got a grant from uh, the United States Olympic Committee and subsequently from uh, NOCSI, which is the National Operating Committee for Standards and mm -hmm. Athletic Equipment, mm -hmm. to try to understand how often, how hard, and how these athletes were doing uh, from a neuropsychologic perspective. Wow. This was early head impact biomechanics research in the early 1990s. Um, and what we learned was that the technology of the day, the sensing technology, mm -hmm. wasn't good enough. What, so what was that technology? Sure. We were, we were using uh, accelerometers, things that measure the motion of the head, yeah. um, rapid motions of the head. And the best we could do at the time with the sensors they had was to stick them on the outside of the helmet because if we put them on the inside of the helmet and then the athlete hit the ground real hard, we might actually hurt their skull. Mm. And on the outside of the helmet, what we learned was we were really just measuring how the helmet deformed how it moved when they hit the head. Not we the weren't head. learning too much about their head. Wow. And so, so, so what did you do then? Sure. Well, after a couple of years of research and uh, some, some good learning and understanding about how often they hit their head, I actually made a decision to put that idea on the shelf for a while because we didn't have the technology available to measure these things the way you should, to understand the head motions. Yeah. So you wanted to be able to measure the head motion to assess the degree of injury? There was a good understanding that acceleration of the head was a good proxy, a good way to understand what was happening to the brain. Uh, no one knew simple things like how often does someone hit their head in different sports, how hard do they hit their head, and what does that mean in terms of brain function later on. That's become a, a much bigger topic these days, but yes. back in the early 90s, most people weren't paying much attention to it. And, and so it's interesting you were interested in measuring, assessing, evaluating, uh, but not 
uh, correct me if I'm wrong, not so much then creating a better helmet. Sure. It was, it was around that time that I started to participate in uh, different standards organizations, uh, national and international, around sports equipment, and helmets were one of them. So this was the whole uh, – it's called ASTM, and those are the standards that govern a lot of the things that, that we have here in our country. Um, and sports equipment is one of the committees. So for a long time, I've been studying and participating. It's a voluntary consensus groups. You go and you volunteer your time and you try to make better rules for minimum safety requirements. It's all based on understanding, though, what the injury is mm-hmm. and how potentially you could prevent it. So uh, this is a, a global organization. Yes. Yeah. So the different countries have different, I guess, different technologies at work, different helmets, different modes of measuring maybe? Well, today, these days, a lot of the standards are harmonized um, where the international communities have come together. Mm -hmm. We all work together. So ASTM is for the U.S. And then there's the ISO organizations and other European Union and other countries as well all have standards. We try to harmonize to to get to the same standards, but we don't always achieve that because some countries want to have their own rules. Yeah. And I'm thinking also that there's a potential competitive advantage in some sports actually in every sport when it comes to equipment. Think about in swimming, you know, I forgot what they call those full body uh, swimsuits that... Shark suits or shark something suits. like that. And they had certain, you know, certain advantages. Um, I, I don't know if they, if they banned them or not. I can't recall. Um, sure. So it's really interesting, Sid. What happens is the standards organization makes the rules mm-hmm. or, excuse me, makes the, the test methods, so how you could test these devices. But it's usually the governing body of a sport. So in swimming, perhaps, it's... Uh, the U.S. Swimming Association or the international swimming mm-hmm. uh, groups that would set the rules to say whether or not you could use it. What the standards group would do would take that particular suit you were talking about mm-hmm. and try to devise a test to see how it could be tested so you don't exceed or underperform uh, the standard. So it doesn't break whatever the standard rules are. That's right. So um, and I'm thinking also in cycling, for example. Like in Britain, the, the Brits seem to win all these Olympic gold medals in cycling. And some people have attributed to like a genius coach, to training techniques, but others to, um, to the actual equipment. I don't know whether that's one of the many industries you've followed, but it brings up this point that uh, there's, a, there's a quest for standards and safety, but there's an unbelievable pressure to come up with something better than other countries have. Some, sure. and, and this has happened, you see it, every time there's an Olympics, there's something that's a little bit different, and sometimes the commentators will talk, talk about that. Is that something you've seen in your experience as well, maybe in skiing or in other, other areas? Well, I think everyone's always trying to get that competitive advantage, and uh, you just hope when it gets to international competitions or even local competitions that the, the playing field is leveled uh, by fair rules. Yeah. And by fair play and, and people following the rules. Yeah, you know, there are a lot of people who think there's nothing fair about the Olympics and, and not just the Olympics, but, but global um, uh, athletic competition. Um, if you think about it in terms of uh, all, the, all the drugs that are possible to take or doping and other methods, and a lot of people get caught. It took a while to catch Lance Armstrong, but he got caught. But uh, there's a lot of suspicions, and people have said this to me in at a pretty high level in Olympic circles. They don't want it. They hope it doesn't happen. But they're, they're, the, I guess the um, payoff, if you, if you can do something that helps you win, is so gigantic. Uh, and not everybody is honorable or honest. And sometimes it's coaches and doctors and athletes barely know what's going on because they have a whole regimen, uh, which is, you know, this is neither here nor there. It's just something that is an endless quest for some type of advantage. It makes me think when it comes to helmets or other equipment, it's got to be the same, the same type of thing. Um, 
which would be a challenge for the standards. Go back to the uh, aerialists of this party. Sure. So that was with the aerialists. They were quiet. Um, sure. What was going on, do you think? Well, I think they were hitting their heads on the, on the snow. So these are athletes that were going up in the air 30, 40 feet. And they were doing flips and twists, and they'd land on a, a steep slope, which was chopped up um, as best they could. And they would over-rotate and do what's called a slapback. And after they'd do that, you know, they would ski down to the bottom, get on a lift, and maybe two minutes later they were going to jump again. And this was during training mm. more than in competition. They, they jumped quite a bit in a day. Um, I asked, what do you think is happening to them? Mm-hmm. And the coaches were interested but, of course, concerned because mm-hmm. we were poking into their, into their sport. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I think they were, everyone was, was worried. Most of the coaches, of course, were athletes themselves and had done this, so they knew what was going on. They knew it. Um, but what was concerning was some of these athletes couldn't necessarily focus uh, on their next jump because their body probably remembered they could do the jump, mm-hmm. but it wasn't mm-hmm. clear they always knew where they were at that point or what their name was. The coaches just kept pushing him, I mean. I don't think they were pushing him. I think that was just the way it was back then. Nobody head injury, head injury was not a considered a, a long-term problem and wow. no one had any idea, I don't think, other than probably it didn't feel so good. Have there been um, long-term studies of following people in the earlier years of some of these sports that had this high impact? Um, where we didn't know as much as we know today? We're learning now. I, I think we still yeah. don't know quite a bit, but yeah, yeah. there's certainly, uh, I think, you know, boxing is probably the one where we learn the most uh, yes. from early on. And obviously athletes who, who get hit in the head a lot uh, have some issues later on in life sometimes, but not all. And that's what's really fascinating about the problem. We no. just don't know. Right. Right. And there are various studies, no doubt, going on all over the place. I Huge number of studies right now. It's one of the big, big topics in sports. Yeah. Um, um, the quest to be the best for, from an athlete is pretty powerful. And um, so they put up with a lot. And I guess if it's normal, and that's quotes for normal because it's happening in other people, um, it's something that the coach can say, yeah, you just got to deal with it or whatever. Um, or you see your, your, um, your teammates dealing with the same thing. You, uh, you just keep going. It's right. interesting about human nature that way, even though you could be seriously hurting yourself. One of the other sports that I uh, did a lot of work in early on was in the baseball industry. Oh. And here's one where the equipment um, was uh, easily modified, and there were a lot of, a lot of interest around trying to uh, uh, keep the sport even or keep performance uh, at a certain level. Mm-hmm. So this is a good, is- uh, interesting issue where the aspects of safety and performance were merged together. Mm. So when you had aluminum bats for college, right. all of a sudden the offense went through the roof. There was all these home runs going on and everyone was talking about, well, what's going on? It must be the bat. And so we had to do a lot of work. No one had ever really measured the performance of a bat out mm. in the field. And so colleague uh, down at Brown, Trey Crisco and I did some uh, early research to measure, much like everything else I do where I'm yeah. measuring things in the field. Yep. Um, we tried to measure the performance of different baseball bats, different aluminum bats with different weight length ratios and all different kinds of material properties around the bat to try to understand what was going on with performance of the bat. In the industry, there was a lot of discussion about this being a safety issue. And uh, it turns out you have to look at the data. Like when you say else. safety issue, what do you mean? Sure. If, if, you're, if the ball is being hit faster off the bat than, say, compared to a traditional wooden bat, yep. and you're the third baseman or the first baseman or even the pitcher, fast. it could be coming at you faster. So can you react in time if mm. the ball is coming off the bat faster? Well, it turned out that those numbers of injuries weren't really uh, increasing dramatically. Mm-hmm. They had happened all along. And so first we wanted to measure, well, how fast can you hit the ball off the bat on a wooden bat? And then how different is it for the different 
uh, aluminum vats, and how could you regulate that? Yeah. Um, you know, today, the StatCast just puts out that number the two seconds after the... They put out the... the uh, um, how fast. And, yeah. and, the, and the impact, or is that the... the right. Call it? For, how fast that ball is hit, is... is ricocheting out off of the bat, right? We needed about $100,000 worth of equipment and hours of uh, careful uh, analysis to figure out for, you know, for a bunch of hits, how fast they were going, something they do now in in two seconds. Why do you think baseball is so fanatical about all these, all these data points? Or are they no different than, say, football or hockey or basketball? I think statistics have become a really interesting part of these sports, Uh, how people look at them, how they uh, make decisions about who's playing and not. In this case, we just wanted to provide the data so that people could make uh, uh, informed decisions sure. as opposed to hypothetical ones or right. ones that might benefit, like you said, what, what they wanted. Right. Uh, the manufacturers were fine with it. They, mm-hmm. they wanted to understand the performance mm-hmm. of their bats as well. What, what, so what happened with the aluminum bats? Sure. What, what we learned was that um, we were regulating perhaps the wrong topic. Yeah. So they were re- regulating the difference between the weight and the length but it happened to half the performance of the bat had to do with the material and half had to do with the swing speed. And so by understanding the swing speed, which was related to where the weight is along the bat, mm. a little technical, but mm-hmm. um, rather than mm-hmm. just how much weight there was, because you could add weight, say, in the handle by where your hands were, and it wouldn't affect the swing speed. Mm. And if you added it down at the far end of the bat, it would really slow the bat down. So we regulated and made recommendations that they regulate now the the swing speed, the ability, the moment of inertia, or how fast you could swing the bat, mm-hmm. and that, that helped. It turned out that a lot of the differences perhaps were more in the balls than the bats, but that's a whole <laughs> different story. Really? <laughs> um, well, while we're on baseball for a second, what about helmets? Has there, has there been any advance that you know of in baseball helmets, ba- batting, batting helmets, really? I think a lot of the protection issues in baseball are around uh, protecting the face yeah. and different aspects of that, but... Uh, no, baseball hats by uh, baseball helmets by and large have done a, a pretty decent job of uh, preventing serious injuries, um, fractured skulls in in baseball. Even when you get hit with a hundred mile an hour fastball, if it hits it on the helmet, yeah. the key is that the player doesn't take the padding out of the helmet. Oh, because really? some of them like to just have a smaller looking helmet because it's more comfortable. Or right, it looks better. It looks better. Well, <laughs> um, so. Um, we're going to take you back to Utah, and then you ended up, you know, starting uh, um, Simbex as well. And so what was the impetus then? So you were studying these, uh, the aerial uh, Olympic athletes, freestyle and aerial, and, um, and you realized there was a problem. You started to measure it, but you didn't have a solution, you said, right? Not, not at that point. So what happened next? Well, about eight years later, I had the opportunity to uh, start my own business. And one of the topics I really wanted to pick up was... Uh, this issue of head impacts. I I partnered with uh, Bob Dean, who's a serial entrepreneur here in the Upper Valley, uh, who started many companies. He was doing work uh, at the time on a lot of things, but one of his focuses was on prosthetics. And uh, the mechanism to to fund some of this work was a government program called the Small Business Innovation Research Program, or SBIR. And it's a a great way to fund research and development that a lot of people didn't know about at the time. Bob was pursuing that in prosthetics, and I was able to make an application to the National Institutes of Health to build technology that we had abandoned in 1992. Why? Well, it became apparent at the time that uh, around 2000 that sensors had now gotten smaller. And the best place you would know about these sensors was in your car. Uh, These were the same sensors that triggered your airbags. 
And the, so the sensor that 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 uh, that recognizes a degree of impact right. that will inflate the huh. So those sensors are accelerometers, and it turns out to be the same kind of accelerometers that we were using a decade before, but now they were tiny, and they were in a form factor and at a cost that we can now put them inside the helmet. So that's what you actually did, the same, the same sensor or, or modified in some way? No, these were the, the sensors from the airbags. Yeah. I had a, a great yeah. introduction through Bob Dean to the CEO of Analog Devices, the company that makes a lot of those sensors. Okay. And he thought the application, the commercial application to uh, sports and football was really, really interesting. Mm -hmm. And he had his engineers help us. He said, yeah, help these guys characterize our mm -hmm. sensors and see if they could be used for mm -hmm. this application. So, yeah, we were using the, the scrap from the automotive industry to start this project. <laughs> it's interesting where innovation comes from. Uh, automotive industry has, you know, billions upon billions of dollars. So there's a lot of money that goes into it. But you found another use for, for kind of a core technology. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so how does it work now with the sensors and the helmet? Sure. Like, how, how, does, how does that actually work? So we started by trying to understand um, how could you measure this. And we wanted to do things like maybe put the sensors in your mouth so you'd be in a mouth guard or uh, put, them so somewhere on, put them somewhere on your body. Yeah, they're, they're really small, tiny. They're, they're, about the, they're not going to bother you. They're about the size of your pinky fingernail. Ah. And uh, wow. some associated electronics with them. And we wanted to do this in real time and record all the data. So yep. there was some other electronics that were needed. Um, and after a lot of effort and a couple of years of work, we were able to figure out a way to put these accelerometers in the helmet but against the head so that we were actually getting a be better measure of uh, head acceleration, which, as I said earlier, is a, yeah. a way to understand a little bit about brain motion right. and try to link it to brain injury. Got it. And so you did that, and then you were able to measure what was going on, and then what happens with that? Sure. Well, the most important was we had to put it in a helmet. Mm -hmm. And to do that in the sports industry, you needed a partner. Um, so we built our technology, and then we started showing it to the helmet companies and mm -hmm. was very fortunate uh, to be able to get a partnership with Rydell, who's the leading helmet manufacturer. And they were keen on understanding what was going on in their sport and making better helmets themselves. Um, so we were able to put our sensors in their helmet and then get onto the field and actually start measuring them. So let me just understand this. So, the, so you were measuring, and that was what you were focused on. The helmet ma manufacturer wants to sell more and better helmets. And so... Were, was part of the thought that they could experiment with new helmets and you'd be able to measure and they could compare the quality of a different helmet? I mean, what was their thinking in backing yours or partnering with you? I think their interest was probably uh, what you said. They were genuinely interested in uh, understanding what was going on on the field so mm -hmm. that they could make better product and, mm -hmm. uh, and understand what was going on on the field. There was a lot of questions beginning around that time about uh, head injuries in sports and long-term effects on the athletes, our personal goals were, were much different. We knew that no one had ever really gotten on the field in large scale and measured how often and how hard these athletes got hit. Mm -hmm. So it, it, fundamental question, it, it, until you knew that, you yeah. couldn't make yeah. any cause and effect relationship. You couldn't understand the mechanisms of mm -hmm. injury. So we first built the technology. Mm -hmm. Then we also got funding from NIH as a much larger study with uh, clinicians scientists, mm -hmm. other engineers, mm -hmm. to really start measuring what was going on and compare it to the clinical outcomes, what was happening to the athletes in terms of their neuropsychological outcomes. So you can actually outcomes. do some careful studies now. Absolutely. Right, so what were you finding? Well, what we found, you know, you'd love to think that there's a silver bullet yes. and you could me measure a certain amount of head impact in a certain direction and that that would be the, the answer and you just make them not 
get that high an impact, but it doesn't turn out that way mm -hmm. because our brains are all different mm -hmm. and the way we hit each other is different. And um, so what we've done is amassed millions of head impacts over the last 15, 18 years to, to start to understand this and compared it to things like brain imaging, to neuropsychological testing, mm -hmm. to uh, all the other clinical mm -hmm. measures that are now out there um, to really try to understand this. And we're still early in that study. Early, after 15 million sure. data points. Oh, it's, it's less than 15 million, but 15 years. 15 years. And uh, millions of data points millions. that let us understand what's really happening in the sport. So is it true then that, you know, when you watch you know, football or hockey, um, basketball for that matter, and baseball, that's all the sports, soccer, um, the players look bigger and they look faster. And therefore, while I'm not a physicist, I would imagine that leads to a stronger, more powerful impact. Is the data back that up, actually? Um, I don't know if the time? data backs that you're hitting harder uh, now than you were 10 or 15 years ago. I think it's, it is quite true what you said. The athletes are probably bigger and stronger. I think the difference, at least in football, was that the game evolved mm. to where hitting with your head was a necessary way to tackle um, to knock these guys down, the bigger, stronger athletes. You why pretty why much, was that necessary? Uh, it, they were bigger and stronger, and just wrapping them up with your arms would made it really hard to tackle. So the, the practice of launching yourself into the player mm -hmm. and the hype that got associated with it mm -hmm. on TV was, was really interesting. I think it evolved into that. I don't think anyone mm -hmm. sat down and said one day, hey, start using your head more. Um, but that's what happened, and it yeah. seemed like the head was more and more involved in the game. I think what's uh, evolved since then through all the, you know, our work and that of many, many others um, is that get the head out of the game yeah, is you kind can't of use, the key. I mean, that's, that's a penalty. You can't um, use your head to tackle somebody. Right. And, Purposeful and, and use and of the head is a bad idea and is now uh, illegal in most sports. Yeah, the other thing you see when you watch, say, football uh, is if someone looks like they have a head injury of any type, there's a concussion protocol of some type. Uh, maybe there are more doctors involved with that, but they have some type of system in place to um, maybe not send back the player too soon, let's, let's say. How, how does that work? I mean, is that working, you think? Is that a good idea? That's a recent evolution that, uh -huh. uh, that clearly is a, a good outcome from all of this kind of work to better understand what's going on on the field and then how to, how to not let the athlete go back too fast. There, there is... A, something called second impact syndrome. It's a rare occurrence. It happens, I think, more in uh, younger athletes than in, in older athletes mm -hmm. uh, and rapid swelling of the brain. And that's where sometimes you get some fatalities uh, from this. So keeping the kid off the field, um, both for severe injuries, but also to better understand whether they are experiencing any of the symptoms that yeah. show up around concussions is, is really important, that, really valuable. Has all of this led to and now I'm talking about kids, uh, let's say, let's just take football because we know that's a violent sport. High school kids, there's a lot of parents I know who don't want their kids to play, their sons to play um, high school football. It's too, it's too dangerous, but which I think your research is probably more supportive than anything else. However, uh, as the helmet technology advanced in any significant way at that level, to protect these kids? I think it's evolving rapidly now that we have the understanding of, of what's going on. So Football helmet padding has gotten thicker. And, uh, um, you know, what, what you said about the sport being more dangerous, I, I don't think the data necessarily support that. Mm. It's, uh, it's a game that's out there that, that people have been playing for a long time. And as the understanding of the injuries evolve, and we teach kids, but probably first we teach coaches not to engage in the kinds of drills that 
uh, lead to a lot of head impacts, uh, we can decrease this risk tremendously. And, you know, you're playing football, you hit your head, and you're playing other sports, you can hit your head. Uh, the idea is to teach the kids to keep the head out of the game through training, practice, education. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that kind of, of training is going to be what really changes uh, this over time. Yeah, It's yeah. really a, an understanding of what's going on and then an educational process to do behavior modification. Yeah, that's what that's what you're saying. It's really interesting. It's really a systemic solution. It's not. Uh, you even said there's no. Sil- we wish there was a silver bullet. It's not that you know. Here's a magic helmet. You're never gonna get hurt anymore. It's it's how you're coached. It's how your coaches how you play. Um, it's outlawing certain behaviors um, such as head on or, or using your head as a as a weapon to try to try to tackle somebody. Uh, so it takes a lot of different things. Yeah, and I'm really proud to have been part of that over yeah. the last decades. Interesting. So let's take one more quick break and, and kind of get back and with Rick and uh, talk a bit more about some of the developments going on at the uh, at the professional football level, and then maybe talk a little bit more about some of the cool things and advice you might have for uh, for other people. We'll be right back. We're back with Rick Greenwald. So Rick, you're still a, you're still a soccer player, aren't you? Yes, I am. So how's that going? Oh, I enjoy it. It was uh, I played just yesterday. It was really fun. Really? And I guess the old knee injury is fine. Yeah, it hasn't been a problem for about 20 years. And so someone who studies head injuries, what do you think about uh, you know heading the ball? You don't do that. Well, actually, as a defender, I, I think I use my head just as about as much as I use my feet, and sometimes I'm probably more accurate with my head than my feet. So what's the deal? It hasn't been banned somewhere, or there's a concern about it? Yeah, there's been, in recent years, there's been uh, a lot of concern about uh, whether kids should be heading the soccer ball. And uh, I think it's an interesting topic uh, to raise because I think we don't know yet. We don't know what the impact is of, uh, of repeated heading of a soccer ball, purposeful heading of a ball. I think back in the old days, there were some issues around leather soccer balls, and they would get really, really heavy when they got wet. Mm-hmm. And uh, I do remember getting hit by those balls, and, and it hurt a lot. Today's balls are a lot uh, better manufactured. They, mm-hmm. they don't get heavier and wet. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the, So there's been recently this, this big interest in preventing heading in youth soccer. And, um, Again, while, heading uh, meaning hitting the ball with your head as part of your repertoire of moving sure. the ball where you want to As part it. of the game. It's the long game. been part of the game. You can advance it with your feet or your head or your chest. Yeah. And uh, so the, the question came up, well, should kids be heading the ball because all of this concern about repetitive heading injuries? Yeah. And I think the bottom line is we just don't know yet. We have to better understand the problem. You know, just like we did in, in football, I think the first idea is to go out and start counting, understand how often uh, the kids are hitting their heads. Uh, what happens when they head the ball purposefully. And that's different than when the ball gets struck and hits you on the side of the head and you don't see it or two players collide. Yep. I think the bigger issue uh, in, in youth sports in particular is enforcing the rules, not letting kids go up with their elbows and hitting the other kid in the head, not getting under the player where the other player flips over and hits mm-hmm. the ground mm-hmm. uh, with their head. Yeah, uh, we, just, we just don't know. And to, to make rules that ban something like that, I guess you could argue that it's preventative and they don't need to do it. Um, you know, that's one point of view. But I, I don't like making rules when we just don't have the data to support it. Yeah, that's one of the things that's really come through, right? D- Rick, your approach is data-driven. Let's do the science. Let's do the research so we can be more well-informed, which is kind of a crazy radical idea, right? <laughs> Let's get the facts before we do anything. That um, seemed to be one of the things I learned uh, way back in high school. <laughs> um, and what about for parents listening? Um, um, I have kids in either they can be playing football or hockey or any sport. What uh, what words of advice might you have for them? 
Well, thanks for asking, Sid. That's, uh, I, I think the best thing we can do is to recommend that parents uh, stay actively involved uh, with their kids' teams, understand what the coaches believe in and how they practice, mm-hmm. um, what they, they teach the kids, and, and being mindful that when, uh, when your kid gets hit in the head and says, hey, I have a headache, or hey, it's, it's uh, not the same, I feel foggy, or I'm not able to, to, to see straight, mm-hmm. uh, to, to take action, to, to really understand what's going on. Um, it doesn't mean you always have to go to the emergency room. It means you have to watch your kids and mm-hmm. see if they're getting worse over time, then, then sure, you have to take some action. Mm-hmm. There's some great protocols now and, and uh, return to play and return to school, which is probably more important than returning to play, um, that's been put out by national academies. And I think parents should be aware of that. There's great information out on the Internet uh, to guide you these days. Those are, uh, like, the protocol is if you had an injury and had a watch, had a be ready to get back to, to play or to school. That's right. What I mean. It's a graded yeah. recovery and it's a time period you wait and then you try to exert yourself and if the symptoms don't come back, you can go to the next level yeah. and start yeah, practicing. Yeah, yeah. You know, the, the whole idea is not, not to come back too soon uh, and to take this seriously. And, and so you're not someone who advocates that kids, high school kids, let's say, or even younger, but let's say high school kids shouldn't be playing certain sports that they really love. Just play it the right way and pay attention and have your parents be part of that, part of that picture. I am a believer in that. Yeah, yeah. Um, speaking about parents, uh, you said a little bit earlier about your own uh, parents being in science and math and, and, and medicine. Um, um, what uh, can you share? Something you know that you you learned or that your father father or mother taught you that really sticks with you today? Well, I, I think the thing that would stick out to me is that they always told me to finish what I start. To <laughs> to when you say you're going to do something, then then go do it and and do it in the right way and do it completely and uh, be able to stand behind it later on. It's mm-hmm. a good lesson, uh, something I, I tried to teach to my kids as well. Yeah, yeah. It makes you quite reliable as a person. Other people can count on you. I hope that's the case. Yeah. Um, um, sticking with the advice, how about your own advice? Let's imagine, and I like to ask this to some of the guests on the, on the SIDCast, let's imagine you can go back and sit next to your own 21-year-old self uh, and you've been transported back and you lean over to yourself at the age of 21 and you say, well, what do you say? What's your advice? Mm. I'd say maybe don't be so judgmental of uh, <laughs> what's going on around you. Um, I always thought, uh, like I always do, that I, I'm right. Of course I'm right. Mm. Um, but I think maybe a little more listening, a little more learning, a little more understanding of uh, the other person's context and, and why they're thinking what they do, that's probably what I would uh, I would say to myself back then, I was, I was in, you know, quick to judgment. Quick to judgment. You were a smart kid, and you thought you had the right answer. And uh, uh, I think one of the things that's come out of our chat today is, you know, there's a lot of nuance to these to these things. And jumping to conclusions is almost always a bad a bad idea. That seems to be the case. Yeah. Um, um, so you've you've had a, a, a fascinating career with a lot of. Um, academic pursuits, a lot of business pursuits, uh, your own companies, in fact. Um, if I could give you a, a mulligan to do something over, redo something, would you, would you take it? Well, I, in my career trajectory, no. I've, I've lived a charmed life, and uh, I wouldn't change a thing. Uh, everything from where I lived, uh, across the country, different places in the country, to mm-hmm. the things I studied, to the people I met, and how each one branched into to other fascinating opportunities. Uh, I try not to miss too many opportunities, and, yeah. and it's been been a really good one. Uh, it's it's very interesting when you talk about you know one thing led to another. You can't map out this stuff ahead of time, and sometimes people kind of wish they could. 
and I, I've often talked about this, you know, if, we, if you really could plan step one, step two, step three, and it actually worked out that way, it'd be like, I don't know if that'd be good or bad, but it'd be kind of amazing to me, wouldn't it? Sid, I'll tell it in a, a very short way, but it's a, a funny story of how life goes on. Yeah. I, I finished my master's degree here at Dartmouth in, uh, um, in 1988, and uh, immediately that was following the stock market crash in mm. 87. Mm -hmm. And so my funding went away because it went away after the crash right. and uh, I had to leave. And, you know, a quick series of events, get your master's degree and have no job, go become a bartender at Whaleback, local <laughs> ski area. Because of that, be able to get free ski tickets. One day end up at Sugarbush and read the Valley News that day going up newspaper. to the mountain, the local newspaper, and find out that there was ski injury research going on at Sugarbush on knee injuries and in skiing, which was something I was quite interested in, and stopping in, and four hours later, I had a job, mm. which led to my whole career, meeting my wife, and everything that came after it, all because I got a job as a bartender after my master's degree. And you can go even further, all because of the financial crisis, uh, and then you got your, de your degree. It's really kind of, it's amazing. It's amazing Sometimes how people, happens. you know, people get caught up, and it's not all working exactly the right way, but you got to live in the present. You just have to be alert, and you said it also, when there's an opportunity, go go after that opportunity. It doesn't always work. That's fine. If it doesn't work, call that learning, but then go on to the next one. You mentioned your uh, your wife. How did you guys meet? Well, we met uh, up in Burlington, Vermont. It was uh, after this uh, this job at the mountain at Sugarbush for that one winter, and I, I quickly got a job up at the University of Vermont with the group that was uh, studying ski injuries. And... Uh, through little connections, uh, my wife was doing her master's degree in biomedical engineering at UVM. And we ended up in the same circles, and uh, the rest is history. And uh, did she end up working with you in, uh, in that research or later she on? She became a clinical researcher uh, uh, later on when we were in Utah, and so we actually worked together for a number of years, uh, which was a lot of fun to spend time with her. And uh, she continues today to be... Uh, working in the field as a neurokinetic therapist. What is that? She studies muscle movement and huh. how people stay moving uh, as they get older. No, I'm going to have to go talk to her, I think. <laughs> it's, a, it's a great thing, and, and she's really in tune with people's bodies and yeah. how they move. How interesting. Um, you also, I guess more recently, even now, uh, have been either you know, coaching or involved with small business uh, for the there's a couple of federal government activities and um, in supporting small businesses. What, what's that about? Sure. Um, I mentioned earlier that, that we got a lot of our funding through the uh, small business program yeah. at the National Institutes of Health and the Department of Defense. And um, one of the things I learned through that was that there was a lot of uh, concern at those agencies about uh, commercialization of technologies that have been funded. Not everyone was getting to the finish line. Um, our experience early, the head impact technology and with, with others that we had gotten grants for around fall prevention, um, uh, we were trying to commercialize and we seemed to be able to get it all the way. And so uh, we were talking to NIH about how we could help that and we ended up getting funded to have a commercialization center. So to help other inventors, whether they're academics, clinicians, um, or just individuals or small companies uh, to actually follow a process, a commercialization process um, to de-risk their technology development and try not to run out of money before they get their product to market, to try to make the right decisions, um, often in medical devices at small markets. And so you have to be really wise with your investment dollars. Um, not everything's a, a big pharma project that's going to make billions of dollars. And if it's a $5 million market, well, you probably can't spend $5 million to develop the product and get it on the market. Mm -hmm. So the government has funded us to help others 
um, learn how to do that, and we provide that resource um, through through uh, th this in group called TREAT, which is Translating Rehabilitation Engineering Advances in Technology. And so what form does that take? Like if I, I'm an entrepreneur and I have this idea, and now I'm listening to you talk about this, what should I do? Well, you can apply on the web mm -hmm. uh, through TREAT. And we provide in-kind services, small grants, sometimes up to twenty-five dollars or $50,000. But really, it's the in-kind. It's working with experts in the field, um, mm -hmm. uh, our network of, of individuals and, and teams who can really help small businesses to uh, not make mistakes that might hinder them and to, yeah, to quickly right. move to the things that are important uh, to advance their product towards the market. Right. Right. It's very interesting because you, what you made me think of is one of the first things we talked about at the beginning of, a, of the podcast, which is when you were in high school and your teachers had this amazing network. You wanted to learn something. You needed to get better at something. They would make a call or send uh, write a letter. I was going to say send an email, but, you know, it's before that. Write a letter. And in some form, you're kind of doing the same type of thing now. Uh, which is kind of a nice, uh, a nice story. Life's a big circle that way, and uh, I think what we do these days is often born of experiences when we're younger. Rick Greenwald, thanks so much for being with us.